It is good to be back here. You know, I've called this gym the Sal's Ear in the past, thinking about silk purses, and yet getting back here this morning was just great. Ken had pushed. You know, we were so crowded in the theater for so long. It was like, what do we do? Where do we go? And Ken Vincent keeps pushing the gym, the gym. And I'm like, please, no, you know. We've been here for, what, a year or more, and it's just, it's been a great fit. So I'm thrilled we're back this morning. Hey, let me pray again for just a second. Father, we ask that you would be present with us this morning in order to accomplish your good purposes. And Lord, that in part means that your Spirit is helping each one of us hear what you have to say to us. Uh, Think of Jesus' words in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, uh, that you would open our hearts, the ears of our heart, Lord, to hear and then to do those things that you're speaking to us. Help us not leave them untaken on a table, Lord, but the things you mean for each of us to do. Help us to pick those up this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to second or give an amen to Aaron's message earlier about the intentionalman.org website. I've been on it. Uh, I'll be posting some things on it, Lord willing, this week. We really are being intentional about calling men up to be men and lead in our families and in the church God calls us to and means us to. And to some significant degree, I think that men being men again and not lording it over wives or kids, but men leading in the servant-like role Christ sets for us, that is the key to transformation, I think, both in the families and in the nation. So I just encourage you, use the website. It's another tool for us to use. There will be book reviews on there. There will be men's groups, leaders talking about what's going on but intentionalman.org. That is Aaron's brainchild, so you'll see his name on there quite a bit too. Hey, let me uh, start this morning uh, by way of uh, Leo Tolstoy, Russian novelist, you know, best known for these huge meandering novels like War and Peace and Anna Karenina, but, you know, he also wrote some short stories, and I'm going to give you a very short version of one of his short stories called How Much Land Does a Man Need?, has anybody in here read this story? It's, yeah, great, great story. You guys know where I'm going with this. My abbreviated version, there's two sisters, and the city sister is visiting the peasant country sister in her home. And they're comparing notes about lifestyles and which one is better, and each one of them thinks their slice of life is better than their sister's. Now, as they're comparing notes, pay them, the husband of the country wife, he's in the house listening. And Payam, the master of the house, was lying on top of the stove and he listened to the women's chatter. It's perfectly true, he thought, busy as we are, thinking of the country life, busy as we are from childhood tilling Mother Earth, we peasants have no time to let any nonsense settle in our heads. Our only trouble is that we haven't land enough. If I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. The women finished their tea, chatted a while about their dresses, and cleared away the tea things and lay down to sleep. But the devil had been sitting behind the stove, and he'd heard all that was said. He was pleased that the peasant's wife had led her husband into boasting, and that he had said that if he had plenty of land, he would not fear the devil himself. All right, thought the devil, we will have a tussle. I'll give you land enough, and by means of that land, I will get you into my power. So as the story proceeds, we see Payam, 
going from not being a landowner at all to he buys a few acres and life's better. But it's not good enough. He doesn't have land enough yet. So he acquires some more acreage and he gets some more. And of course, it's never quite enough. He's on the verge of a huge land deal. He's going to be buy a lot of acres at a pretty good price when someone tells him about another area owned by this group called the Backshears and he said they give their land away so cheap you wouldn't believe it. And it's virgin land, never been tilled, and he wants to plant wheat. And it's got a river to water, and it's just unbelievably good land for an unbelievably good price. And so Payam heads off to the land of the Bakshirs, and he starts negotiating with their chief. And the chief says uh, to Payam's request, he says, I want it all done legal. I want title so everybody knows this is my land. The chief says, yes, yes, uh, that can be done quite easily. We have a scribe. We'll go to town with you and have the deed properly sealed. And what will the price be, asked Payam. Our price is always the same, 1,000 rubles a day. Payam didn't understand. We don't either the first time we hear this, do we? A day? What measure is that? How many acres would that be? How much land am I, am I talking about? We do not know how to reckon it out, said the chief. We sell it by the day. As much as you can go around on your feet in a day is yours. And the price is 1,000 rubles a day. Payam was surprised. But in a day, you can get around a large tract of land, he said. The chief laughed. It will all be yours. But there's one condition. If you don't return on the same day to the spot where you started, your money is lost. But how am I to mark the way that I've gone? Why, we shall go to any spot you like. We'll stay there. You start from that spot, make your way around, take a spade with you. Wherever you think it's necessary, make a mark. Every time you turn, dig a hole. And then afterwards, we'll come with a plow and mark your lines. You can make as large a circuit as you please, but before the sun sets, you must return to the place you started from. All the land you cover will be yours. Sounds like a good deal. So he's so excited that night he can't sleep. During the night, towards the dawn in the morning, he has a dream. And in his dream, each of the people along his life's journey who introduced him to the next section of bigger, better land came back up in his memory. And yet as he saw them in his dream, each one of them turned into the devil. And he scratches his head and it seems odd, but he's excited, falls asleep, gets back up in the morning at dawn and goes go and joins the, the box shears and the chief. Picks a nice spot on a nice hill and takes off. Now, you can imagine, he starts to the east at the rise of the sun. So he's got all day ahead of him. He's got his jacket on, it's cool. He's got some water around him. He's got some bread for lunch and he takes off. And he walks, walks a good long way. And you can imagine, I've got all day. I want as much land as I can get. So he walks a good long way, starts getting warm, takes his coat off. The grass is cool and moist, so he takes his boots off, goes a good long way, finally stops. Thinks, this is a pretty good long way. I'm going to dig a hole, makes his first hole. Takes a hard left. And again, he wants as much land as he can get, so he heads left a good long way. The day's wearing on. He's getting a little tired, so he stops. He has some bread. He has some water. He knows I can't afford to take a nap. 
because I'd fall asleep, lose part of the day. I'm refreshed. I'm good. I'll go on. So he does. Goes another good long way, stops, marks his corner, turns left again. So he's coming back the direction he'd started, going towards the setting of the sun. Now the trouble is, by the time he started west again, he realizes, you know, the day's further spent than I realized. And I want to go all the way back as far as I can and then take a hard left and make a nice big square of land. But as he's heading back, he realizes, I don't think I'm going to have time to get straight ahead and straight over for a nice rectangle. And though it really bothers him to think about it, he realizes as he's headed back west, I'm going to have to veer back towards the corner or I'm going to run out of daylight. And so he heads sort of caddy corner across this land. Now, as he's going, he sees the sun is descending, descending, going down, and it's closer to sunset than he realized. And so he picks up his pace, and he's running as hard as he can. And he thinks he's going to be out of time, and so he runs harder, and he's soaked, and he's sweating, and it's hard to keep going, but he's drawing breath, and, you know, if he gets this, he's good to go. And Payam looked at the sun, which had reached the earth. One side of it had already disappeared. With all his remaining strength, he rushed on, bending his body forward so that his legs could hardly follow fast enough to keep him from falling. Just as he reached the hillock, it suddenly grew dark. He looked up. The sun had already set. He gave a cry. All my labor has been in vain. And he was about to stop, but he heard the Bakshir shouting. And he remembered that though to him from below the sun seemed to have set, they on the hilltop could still see it. So he took a long breath and he ran up the hill. It was still light there. He reached the top. He saw the cap. The chief's cap was on the ground with his money in it. That's what he had to get back to. Before it sat the chief laughing and holding his sides. Again, Pam remembered his dream and he uttered a cry. His legs gave way beneath him. He fell forward and reached the cap with his hands. Ah, that's a fine fellow, exclaimed the chief. He has gained much land. Payam's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but he saw that blood was flowing from his mouth. Payam was dead. The boxers clicked their tongues to show their pity. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Payam to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. That's a twist, isn't it? How much land is enough? Well, eventually... Six feet was enough. Six feet was enough. This would be a great introduction to a passage like Luke 12 if you're thinking about, remember the farmer? And I suspect for Tolstoy this was in the back of his mind. Remember the farmer in Luke 12 who says, gosh, I've got so much land and so much good crops. I'm going to build bigger and better barns. I'm going to store it all up. I'm going to take early retirement is really what he said. And you remember God came to him that night and he said, you fool, because your life is required tonight. And Jesus said, don't be rich on the earth so much. Be rich in heavenly things. I'm using this, though, this morning to introduce a passage that talks about God measuring out for each one of us how much land is enough. Not quite Tolstoy's version, but we're in a text this morning that says very clearly that God himself lines out your life and mine He, as it were, He puts a circle around our life. It represents the sphere of our influence. It represents who we interact with. It represents our social standing, our wealth. It represents who we're able to serve in Christ's name. And the passage we're in this morning says, 
It's not that we're grabbing for all the land we can. It's that God has sovereignly circumscribed our life with an amount of land that He intends us to occupy. And so when we're thinking about land in Tolstoy's version, think about the sphere of responsibility and influence I have in my life. How big is it and how much is enough? You know, if we talk money, how many of us are content right now with the amount of money we make? Or if we think, we look around and we say, uh, I know my brother or my sister so-and-so, and they have so much more influence in the church than I have. How many of us are content right where we're at in our, in our sphere of influence in the church or in our social standing or anything else you think in your life or mine that we can measure? How much is enough? How much is enough to be happy, to have peace, to have joy, to, to be content? How much is enough as far as God's concerned? That's what Paul takes up in 2 Corinthians 10 this morning. And ask yourself this. As we look through life, we're figuring out how much is enough. Are we motivated like Payam was, really by greed and by avarice? Or are we motivated like Paul is, as you'll see this morning, to honor Christ in the sphere God has allotted to him? How much is enough? If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, we took the first six verses out of 2 Corinthians 10. We talked about spiritual warfare. And through the rest of the chapter, Paul's talking about spheres of influence and who's responsible for what. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 7 through 18, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Paul continues there, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. That is, as you compare these Jewish leaders in Corinth to me, he says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his opposition in Corinth, they say, his letters are weighty and strong. Man, he can write a letter. But his personal presence is unimpressive, not much to look at, and his speech is contemptible. Lousy voice too. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when present such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. These would be these Jewish leaders. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. We will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned or God divided like a pie to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. We're not boasting beyond measure in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, not to boast in what has been accomplished 
in the sphere of another. Here and then in Romans 16, Paul says he hopes eventually to preach the gospel in Spain. Verse 17, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. From Jeremiah 9 there. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. I'm going to just give very brief treatment to the first and the third points on your uh, teaching guide there this morning. Very brief indeed. The first, the folly of judging by outward appearances, Paul brings up again in verse 7. You're judging things as they are outwardly. The Corinthians were, again, a very carnal lot, and so they were given to judge spiritual things by outward or external appearances, and they're doing it again. And Paul says, guys, listen, in the age of the Spirit, when we follow a Messiah who looked anything but messianic, when we live in this age in which power is measured by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, it's folly to judge a person based on what they look like on the outside. If they have importance or social standing or great wealth or if they are great oratory power, Paul says all of that is meaningless In the church age, the Messiah we follow, he says, was unimpressive. It doesn't matter if we're unimpressive because the power and the work is done by God the Spirit himself. So don't get hung up. He says again, this is a recurring theme throughout this letter, don't make the mistake of judging whether someone has great spiritual authority or little based on how they look on the outside. The things you and I can measure externally, Paul says, have no value in determining spiritual power and responsibility. Uh, May 29th, when we went through 2 Corinthians 5, verses 12 through 17, you can go back there if you'd like to for more information on this theme of comparisons. Now, the place I want to hang my hat on this morning, uh, verses 12 through 16, uh, for me, I confess, these verses were life-changing several years ago. This thought, this notion that I don't ultimately control my destiny as a Christian, that it's actually God who's measured out, circumscribed the the sphere of my life and influence. This was liberating, and I hope it is for you this morning as well, nothing less than that. But there's a group of wannabe apostles in Corinth, and they're telling Paul, and they're telling the church at Corinth, hey, we're better than you, and we're taking over this role of leadership in Corinth. And Paul says, well, there's a problem with that because God has given me the role of leadership as an apostle over the church, in the church at Corinth, and not you. You're not free to take it because it wasn't given to you, Paul says. Listen to the measurement terms here in these verses, 12 through 15. Paul says in verse 12, they, his opposition, they're measuring themselves by themselves. They have an external criteria for measurement. They're measuring, and it's against each other. How well do I stack up against someone else? Verse 13, Paul says, we won't boast beyond our measure. We're boasting within the measure of the sphere God has divided to us as a measure. Measurement, measurement, measurement. By the way, in the Greek, sphere is the Greek canon. You know, when we talk about the canon of the Scripture, it comes from a word that uh, we assume means cane, and it would have been a straight piece of stick that you could measure things by. And so all the language in these verses is about measuring, but Paul's talking about measuring 
God's way instead of man's way. Verse 14, Paul says we're not overextending ourselves. We're not reaching further than we should, but our influence here is within the sphere God has given us. And then in verse 15, we're not boasting beyond our measure. So the whole passage is filled with this idea of measurements of how much. How much land is enough for a man? How much of anything is enough for any of us? And how do we determine that? All these terms are measurement terms. And Paul's contrasting how his opposition compares and measures things and the way God measures and divides up his land. Now, Paul says to the Jewish pseudo-apostles, you can't take my place in leadership at Corinth because God himself gave it to me and not you. Excuse me, guys. I am totally lost on my papers again. I printed both sides, and I usually don't, and I thought, I can get away with it. Let me make sure that I'm where I belong. Okay. Paul says, God's measured out my ministry. God's divided up the land. He's given me so much, not more, but not less. God set the boundaries and the measure of how much land is enough for me. God has ordained, Paul says, the extent of my ministry and my influence. This, is, this may be hard to swallow. If you tell someone that the measure, the sphere of their life has been ordained by God, it sounds constraining, but think through some other verses with me here for just a second. Paul himself says here, God's determined the sphere of my influence. I didn't determine it. God determined it. But God determines a whole lot more than that. Listen to Paul from Ephesians 2.10. Paul says there, God has ordained the works that he's called me to in this life. So there Paul says, we are his, God's workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Paul says, God's ordained the sphere of my responsibility and my calling. Paul says here, God's ordained the works he means me to do in my life as a Christian. It doesn't stop there. Paul also said God ordains the spiritual gifts that we use in the sphere he's given us. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul says, of spiritual gifts, one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. God ordains and chooses the spiritual gift each one of us have. We don't choose that. God did. Further, Paul understood that his days and the point of his conversion and his role as a good news messenger to the Gentiles had all been predetermined by God. So in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, Paul says there, when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, Paul didn't know it, but God had said while Paul was still in the womb, this is my man. He doesn't know it now, and no one else knows it now, but I've marked him out as my own. He says, from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. When you think of the Damascus road, Paul was not searching for Jesus Christ. Paul was going to persecute Christians. And Jesus appearing on the road and knocking him down and saying, you're mine, this was God's work. This was not Paul's desire. This was not his decision. This was not human will at work. 
And not only did Jesus interrupt Paul's life and say, you're mine, son, but he also said, I've got a job for you. You're going to be my spokesman to the Gentiles. You're going to be the guy, you who've been persecuting Christians, you're now going to go to the nations and you're going to proclaim Christ, my son, for me there. Paul didn't choose that. God chose that and gave it to Paul. Now, not only that, but the same thing is true of Peter. So in Galatians 2.7, Paul says, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Paul says, God entrusted me with the responsibility of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, to the Jews. So Paul says, I was called by God before I had a will to exercise. God interrupted my life on the road to Damascus and said, you're my man and you're my choice to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter's my man to take the gospel to the Jews. Now, this doesn't stop there either. It's hot, isn't it? Keep them going. Keep them going. It's stuffy. Um, The same thing is true of nations. You know, this morning thinking about 9-11 and really just in the news, the Arab Spring, the Arab Uprising, when we think of nations and changes of borders and changes of leaders, whether they're dictatorships or republics or democracies or whatever, we, we tend to see something that looks fairly scattered, fairly chaotic, fairly unplanned. And while that's true on a human level, that's not true on a divine level. Paul said in Athens in Acts 17, 26, God made from one man, that is from Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And God determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God determines the times nations live, the time in which they exist as a nation. And God determines the geography, literally, how much land is enough for those nations, says Paul to the Greeks. So Paul says God has sovereignly determined the times and the boundaries of the nations and your time and your boundaries and my boundaries also in the sphere of our influence, in the days we have on the earth, in the area of responsibility he's giving us, in the role in life we find ourselves in. None of that is by accident, according to Paul. God has sovereignly chosen all those things for us. Now, generally for most of us, how much land is enough? It's never quite enough. Someone famously asked a guy like a billionaire, how much is enough? And he said, one dollar more. How much is enough? For most of us, it's never enough. We always want more. And so to ask ourselves, how much is enough? This is a great question. And you ask this in the context of 2 Corinthians, and the tables get turned because we start hearing this repeated theme. God determines how much is enough. Uh, Francis Schaeffer speaks to this issue about how much is enough in an essay he wrote called No Little People, No Little Places. It's probably one of his better-known essays. Bear with me. I'll read just a couple of paragraphs from that. Schaeffer said this, If a Christian is consecrated, that means we're sold out to the Lord. We say, Lord, your will, not mine. If a Christian is consecrated, does this mean he will be in a big place instead of a little place? 
the answer, the next step, is very important as there are no little people in God's sight. Everyone is of inestimable value to God. So there are no little places. To be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants him, this is the creature glorified. God must be the reference point not only in our thinking but in our living. This means being what he wants me to be, where he wants me to be. We all tend to emphasize big works and big places, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. It's carnal. It's not divine. To think in such terms is simply to hearken back to the old, unconverted, egoist, self-centered me. This attitude taken from the world is more dangerous to the Christian than fleshly amusement or practice. It is the flesh. Then as he winds down, he refers to Luke 14, the passage where the man goes to the wedding feast and he picks out for himself one of the seats of honor up at the top table. He says, both individual Christians and Christian organizations fall prey to the temptation of rationalizing this way, that is, assuming that God means for us to have the place of prominence, the biggest place, rationalizing this way as we build bigger and bigger empires. But according to the Scriptures, this is backwards. We should consciously take the lowest place unless the Lord Himself extrudes us into a greater place. And for Schaefer, this was an important word. We take the lowest place, he says, and then we allow the forces God brings to bear to push us into that new sphere he wants us or that larger sphere. This is the way of the Christian. He should choose the lesser place until God extrudes him into a position of more responsibility and authority. So, based on Paul, and Schaefer makes a great point, we should not, as far as it depends on us, we should not be saying, I'm going to grab more and more ground. How much is enough? More. But rather, we should, even if it seems like a very small place, even if it feels restrictive, we should say to God, Lord, I'm going to make the most of this little plot of land, this little slice of life you've circled out for me and made me responsible for, and I'm going to take joy in you in doing it and see by faith This is a good thing from you that I'm capable of. Help me be faithful right where I am in the little place. That's Schaefer's theme. Now, having said that, on the other hand, some of us God is going to extrude into larger places. And some of us would rather not be extruded into larger places. And we would say, I want to stay in the garden. It's safer there. I'm comfortable there. I don't want more responsibilities. I don't want a bigger sphere of influence. And if you find that that's who God has made you, that you say, I want the little spot, and God's pushing you into larger spheres of responsibility, faith is still the issue. And saying, Lord, thinking of Caleb and I think it's Numbers, uh, we can by all means go up and take that land. We shall by all means go up and take that land. Some of us are always wanting more land to occupy, more influence, more wealth, more of whatever. And to us, God would say, be content where you are, be faithful where you are. And if I think it's a good thing for you, and if it is for my kingdom, then I'll push you into larger spheres, larger areas of influence. 
Some of us, we want to stay in the small corner, and God is pushing us out. And faith for us is saying, Lord, even though I'd rather stay where I am, you're Lord, you're God, I'm not. I want to make the most of the responsibilities in the sphere of influence you've given me for Christ and his name and his cause. This is the same either way. It really is an issue of faith. God knows what he's doing. If, if the circle of my life is small or if it's large, enough is what God gives me. God knows how much is enough. This sounds constricting. If you're like me, when I'm reading these things, I feel like God's saying, Mike, you're only getting this much. I'm only giving you this much. This is my initial. So when I was meditating on this passage many years ago, uh, the liberation is, is knowing that because God knows me and because he loves me, and I know that according to Romans 8, he wouldn't withhold any good thing from me, then I can have confidence that whatever the sphere of influence in life that God has given me is, whatever it is, I can actually be happy there. In fact, God means for me to be happy there, if it's bigger, if it's little. And think of this for just a minute. The sun, everything in the universe is moving, but the sun, relative to the planets, it's in a fixed position. And it's because of its constancy that it's bound up within its own sphere of influence. It's because the sun is locked in its position that the sun can actually bless us in the ways that it does, that it gives us light and heat. We couldn't live without the sun. The sun's got to be right where it's at or we're not blessed by it. And you think of the earth in its orbit too. You know, the earth is on an orbit around the sun and it doesn't change much. Well, that's really restrictive. And what's fair about that? But what would happen to the earth if we went a little bit off our orbit? If we went a little closer to the sun, what would happen? We'd burn up. And if we went a little further away, what would happen? We'd freeze up. In other words, the elements of life that we like and that we appreciate, they occur because some things are locked in their position. Because God has said, I've set an order for you. I've got an orbit for you. I've got a sphere of influence within which I want you to live and serve me. Not outside. But if we understand that there's life and there's blessing in the restriction... Then we get it. And you know, really at the end of the day, if we've got Christ, we've got everything we need. And if we live in a little place, we've got enough land. And if we live in a big place, we don't have too much land. If we can see God means to bless us in that sphere of influence, it changes the way we think about it. You know, for every one of us here, every one of us has an orbit, we have a sphere, we have a section of life that God has divided out for just us. In your family, no one else can take your place. To your parents, to your siblings, if you have siblings, no one else can take your place. You have a unique role, a sphere of influence to fill there. If you're married, no one else can take your place with your spouse. No one else can love your spouse for you. That's your sphere, marked out, carved out by God for you and no one else. They can't take it. They can't have it. You know, all of us think about the lives we touch in school, in our neighborhood, whatever our communities are, our circles, our spheres of influence. No one else can take your place. And so with Paul, we should say, Lord, I want to make as much of the influence you've given me 
in the sphere you've measured out for me, with the people you've included within that sphere, I want to make as much of that area in Christ's name for Christ's cause as I can. And then it's not about how much. It's about being faithful with what God gives us. David wrote about his sphere of influence in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. And when David looked at his life, he said, Lord, it's like an inheritance. My relationship with you, what you've called me to, my life, the way you've ordered it. He said, it's like an inheritance. Someone has measured up and given out to me. He says it this way, the Lord, Yahweh, is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot, that is, in the inheritance, that section of land that would come to David. The lines, the boundary lines, he says, as he describes his life, have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. David looked at his life and says, man, Lord, it's great. You've blessed me. Life is like a section of land that you've measured up and marked out for me, and Lord, I love it. And he loved it because he loved God. So our aim should be to avoid the pay syndrome. How much land is enough? A little bit more. How much influence? How much money? My standing in the church, my standing in this larger culture, how much is enough? A little bit more? That gives you six feet, six feet down. Think about this too for just a second. We'll see in the next chapter, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, The people Paul's primarily addressing related to this, he calls in one place pseudo-apostles. They're false apostles. Other people think of them as super-apostles. They think they're the ultimate kind of apostle. But think of this for a second. Paul says in chapter 11, he says those guys that you think so highly of, they're actually, they're there from Satan. They're Satan's servants. They're the devil's servants and they're in church with you on Sunday and you think highly of them and you listen to them and you take your lead from them. Now, do you think those guys, those pseudo-super apostles in Corinth, do you think they thought they were Satan's agents? Do you think they believed? Did they say to themselves, I belong to Satan, I worship Satan, and I'm in this church for Satan? I highly doubt it. I think they were like the Pharisees, and I think they were like Pahim. Their motivation was greed, and it was avarice, and it was what can I get? How much can I get? How much more can I get for myself? I'm sure they didn't think I'm here on Satan's behalf. I think their thinking went like this. I'm a great speaker. I have a great pedigree. Who is that little Paul fellow anyway? Look at him. Listen to him. He's pathetic. And that little back corner I've been in Palestine, it's, it's not enough. I should be in that bigger, brighter, more expensive church over there in Corinth. And then I'd have a, a setting that's suitable to me and who I am and who I should be. Greed and avarice. How much is enough? A little bit more. I think that's what motivated them. That's the opposite of Paul's. Paul says, I want to be faithful where God's put me with what God's given me. That's my desire. That's my motivation. To be in the place of God's choosing, using the gifts God has given, to fulfill the works God has ordained in the times He has allotted us, living by faith and making much of Christ and all of it, 
That is occupying the land as God intends us to occupy it. That is living within the measure of the sphere God has set for us. Paul says to the pseudo-apostles and the Corinthians that in teaching and leading the church in Corinth, he says, I'm merely occupying the land God has carved out for me. No more and no less. Last point, point three, verses 17 and 18. Who's got bragging rights here, Paul says? Who's got bragging rights? You know, the pseudo-apostles were great braggers. They're always comparing themselves to others, and they think they have much to boast in. This is so funny on one hand. You know, if you read the first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul told the Corinthians there, look around you. Who has God chosen to make his own? He says there's not many in your midst that are wealthy, that are wise, that are socially well-placed. He said to them, this church that loves comparisons with the rest of the world, uh, God chose the foolish things, that's you guys, and the down and outers, and the people who were nothing God chose, Paul says. Well, now they've turned around from that, and they said, man, these guys are the human measure, and we want to boast in them. And those guys are saying of the self, man, we're it. We're going to boast in ourselves. And Paul's like, guys, you just don't get it. And he quotes Jeremiah 9. And I suspect he was thinking of Jeremiah 9 when he wrote 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to Jeremiah's words. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he knows and understands that I am God and that I delight in loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things declares the Lord. So who has bragging rights? You know, anybody that knows Christ has bragging rights because our boast is not supposed to be in ourselves. It's supposed to be in God himself and in the things he loves and delights in, loving kindness, justice, righteousness. If we occupy a great place in life with wealth and responsibilities, we should bless God and ask him to help us represent him well in that sphere, that slice of pie he's given to us. If we occupy a small place in life, we should bless God and ask Him to help us to fully occupy that slice of life He's given to us. Let me close with another piece of literature shorter than Pam's story. This is Willie Shakespeare's 29th sonnet. Doesn't sound like it goes with this passage, I grant you, but when you hear Shakespeare refer to the person in his life that makes him think he shouldn't trade places with anybody, you think about Christ and the way he's blessed each one of us. Willie said, when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, when times are bad and I don't measure up, I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble death heaven with my bootless or useless cries. God's not listening to me. And look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope. Featured like him, better looking, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contented least, yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark at break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state 
with kings. You know, my prayer for each of us this morning would be that we would have that kind of attitude about our life, about where God's put us, about how big our state in life is, that we would say, Lord, I don't want to trade places with anyone, with the wealthiest, with the richest, with the most influential, because God, when I think on you and what I have in you and how you've blessed me and your determination to bless me in the future, why would I want to trade places with anyone else? You know, would to God that we can get past carnal comparisons so that we feel okay about ourselves. You know, the greed and the avarice, it's usually just us trying to feel okay about ourselves. And we forget we're already kings and queens. Not in Narnia, we're kings and queens in heaven. Every Christian is going to rule and reign with Christ forever. And you and I are going to have spots in heaven uniquely created for us. In my Father's house, there's many places, Jesus said, and He's got one just for each of us. Not only a place physically, a sphere of influence. Cities to rule or art to create. I don't know what all that will look like. But we're settling for less when we compare our lives to others and say, Lord, my standard is what they have. God says it's low. It's too low. It's not enough. I'm going to bless you with more. So if we can get past comparisons like the Corinthians, we can have joy and we can have peace in the sphere of life God's got us right now. And you know what? For some of us, if God carves that down in the future, that we have less influence, God loves us just the same. And we're called to faithfully serve Him in that sphere just the same. And if God enlarges our sphere of influence so that we're intimidated and tempted to anxiety, it's the same faith that says, Lord, you're in this too. I accept this from you. I know that you'll be good to help me be faithful in this sphere as you were before. All of us go through periods of transition. We're not always static. It's not always the same sphere. It's not always the same people. It's not always the same influence. But generally, at any point in time, can we say with Shakespeare and with Paul and with David, Lord, the boundary lines you've set for me, I love them. Thank you for the way you've blessed me and what you've given me. Father, help us to see life as you do. Help us to give up with little yardsticks. Help us to see that in the ways you've carved out influence and life and times for us here on the earth, it's always meant as a blessing. And that, Lord, you're giving us the opportunity to represent you to people uniquely, Lord, in our sphere of influence. Help us to love you and rejoice in the allotment, Lord, you give us. Help us to bless your name until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.